I love the Bible so much, so, so much. Uh, I do feel a little bit bad for you guys tonight. I didn't mean to, but my whole Bible on the side there is filled with stickies, and I ran out of room. So there's like three markers on the bottom. My intent is not to preach long, so if this ends up going into two sessions, that is okay. So I'm not gonna hold you hostage is my commitment to you. It doesn't need to all be done and once said. It's not like a line upon line thing. It's just gonna be some fun reminders. But uh, yeah, I wasn't planning on that, but what a sight that is. But uh, hey, I love the Bible. Jesus is in there. It's amazing. It's amazing. And so Acts chapter two, we're continuing in Altar Table Road. Oh, look, bam, there's the slide already. I think uh, next week will be kind of the last session in this, and then uh, we'll be kind of spinning the teaching team back up again. Um, but Acts chapter two, we've been opening with verse 40 through 47. And so when you get to Acts chapter two, if you'd stand for the reading of the word, because the commander of the Lord's armies... is present and he loves his word. And we stand just to honor our honored guest. So Acts chapter two, verse 40. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, Breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Lord, we love you. And we just never gets old saying that. We love you. We love you. We love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your leadership over us in this season. And we thank you that your nearness has been just our incredible good. And we just bless you. We pray that your word would run swiftly, that it would be glorified, that you would give me utterance so that I could speak the mysteries of Christ as I ought. And we just thank you for the testimony of Jesus, what he sees and feels about these things to just be brought forth this evening through the word. Holy Spirit, we just invite your presence to come. We thank you for a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Jesus. And we love you. Amen, amen. You may be seated. Oh, I forgot the... Oh, well, we're non-denominational anyway. We're not like super liturgy about it, but you know, that was the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (laughs) That's one way to say it when I accidentally skipped it. But uh, now everything seems like it's put right, mostly joking. But uh, tonight we're continuing in Altar Table Road. Acts 2.42 has been our template since uh, I just began on this, this focus for us where it says they were continually devoting themselves. And 
So we did a session on continual devotion, um, then looked at the apostles' teaching to fellowship. We looked at two aspects of the fellowship. We looked at our general fellowship, and then we looked at how the marriage covenant of each individual marriage and family contributes to the fellowship. We looked at breaking of bread um, and the Lord's table last week, and this week we're on to prayer, and uh, next session is gonna be the road, unless I can't get through all this, which I didn't write very many notes. I just have a lot of scriptures. <laughs> um, but uh, Acts 2.42 has been, been our focus, and uh, it seems appropriate after reopening the prayer room this week and the dedication service last week. And so last Saturday was so much fun. Just had a blast kind of going through the harp and ball model with a, a lot of you guys and new singers and stuff. And like singers getting up and like, whoa, like you're really good. Why don't you sing with us? Um, and then Daniel's like, I want Joshua on my team. And uh, so anyway, it was just cool to, to have that, to have that dedication moment, to come to the table of the Lord. Everyone got a raisin cake and a portion of meat and some bread, like it said in First Chronicles 16. And that was just, that was loads of fun. Cassie actually made the meat happen because I was wondering, you know, in the Tabernacle of David, when they brought the ark back to his tent, every six steps they sacrificed. And, and uh, so that was a lot of bloodshed that day as sacrifice unto the Lord. And so it makes sense that then David gave a portion of meat to the whole nation of Israel because there was a lot of bloodshed that day and a lot of sacrifice that day. And uh, so the whole nation ended up with meat and then Cassie was just so great, like, oh, let's just get grass-fed beef jerky. I'm like, that works, that's brilliant. And so just got to share a priestly meal, but uh, it's just cool, the timing of this. I was sharing with the team earlier, like I never liked plan out in a super detailed way of like, we're gonna open the prayer house this week and this is where we're gonna be at in the series. And, and like, we don't even think that far. It's just, it's more fun to me because God thinks that far and he puts things together as we'll see. Like one thing that's really special about the ninth hour of prayer or the ninth hour of the day being the hour of prayer in the book of Acts. But uh he just puts these things together that are so special. So it's just, I feel like another kiss from the Lord. Like we opened the prayer room last week and now we're on the session on prayer. It's taken us a while to get here and uh, we would have been here sooner, but you know, other things were happening and, and during different weeks. And so just the timing of the Lord for everything to be synced up is just amazing. And then next week and the following week, the things that are syncing up are just also mind blowing to me. But we've been focusing on Acts 2.42 um, and uh, tonight in our focus on the prayer where it says they're continually devoted to prayer. Tonight is not about prayer um, and specific kinds of prayer, um, but more about prayer in general and its life in the New Testament church or the role of prayer in the New Testament church. So I know that there's tons of stuff to get into. I love reading Ian Bounds and Leonard Ravenhill um, Andrew Murray, and uh, some, some even really good Catholic books like Prayer by Hanser's von Balthasar. Like, there's lots of great resources on prayer, and prayer is such a massive topic because the Bible is really a prayer manual. It's a book on prayer. So there's so much stuff to talk about. And again, there's many kinds of prayer, principles of prayer, and they're all glorious, and they're all super helpful. Um, but right now, we're looking at big picture cultural stuff. Um, and we're gonna be looking at prayer as it's our duty before God as a kingdom of priests. Um, again, big picture. 
And uh, we're going to look at this praying priesthood in the scriptures as the beginning, the sustaining means, and the end of our entire Christian life, our entire walk of intimacy with the Lord, and our entire like missional focus or the kingdom work that we do. Like prayer is our beginning, it's our sustaining means, and it's our end of everything we do and who we are. And so first what I wanna do before I get into those three elements is just look at the priesthood. And uh, this might be a reminder for some of us, there might be new information for some of us, but I don't know why, it seems like in our culture, like priesthood, just gets completely overlooked. It's coming back and gaining steam in certain circles, but at large in the body of Christ, when you say priesthood, you don't really get a whole lot of people that understand what you're talking about, and so they automatically assume like cult, like are you a Mormon, are you a Catholic, or like what do you mean priesthood? But it's it's such a massive topic. I was, we were having a conversation with Nigel after the prayer meeting on Tuesday and some others in the hallway and uh, he was talking about the priesthood because we had made mention of it um, for the dedication service in First Chronicles 16, how David was escorting his nation into a Melchizedek priesthood, the same priesthood that we operate under. And uh, we were just talking about how massive the priesthood is, how massive of a topic. Like the whole Bible, you could also say, just as I said, the Bible is a prayer man or a manual on prayer. The whole entire Bible is a book on priesthood because we know that God wants to dwell with his people. He wants to tabernacle with men and he will be our God and we will be his people. That was his desire from the beginning. Read through the whole narrative of the beautiful story that the Lord has uh, continually fought for us to pull a peculiar people back unto himself to end in Revelation where he will tabernacle with God and he will be our God and we will be, with, um, and we will be his people and we'll see him face to face. Um, it says in Revelation 22. So the priesthood is about being close to God. In fact, I feel like it, when you understand priesthood, you can interchange the concepts of being a bride of Christ and the priesthood as really the same realities. And being the bride talks about different facets of intimacy that are supposed to be interjected into the priesthood. So the priesthood is not this cold duty to rote liturgy, but the priesthood are those that are you know, been washed, had their hands clean and can ascend the holy hill and get close to God. The priesthood is all about just nearness and getting close to God. So it's amazing, like this book is all about priesthood and like why is it so missed? I think it's missed for one of the reasons it's like we just boil things down to simple doctrinal principles that we think are simple enough for people to kind of understand the gospel in some sort of sense and we get people to agree to doctrinal truths without ever discipling them into the love and the knowledge of God and into what the priesthood is and now the priesthood's kind of become devoid of our corporate expression to the point that when most churches gather on Sunday, they think they gather for the purpose of evangelism. Like, I'm going to invite my neighbor to church so that they can hear the pastor preach the gospel. And then the pastor's gonna give an altar call. 
And then you have folks that see kind of like, okay, we're missing the reason why we gather, and then they kind of grow a bad attitude of the gathering in general. They might, might, they might could point their finger and say, something is wrong and it's not working, but we don't know what it is. So then you have a whole movement and reaction to that that's saying, well, we need to get outside the four walls and be the church. And it's like, I agree, but the, you know, the time once a week where for one, two, or three, or four hours we can actually gather together is really important. And there's another 160-some hours during the week that we can get outside the four walls and be the church. But don't let go of the gathering. And I feel like what we've lost is like the reason why we gather is not for the purposes of evangelism. It's actually to serve the Lord, to stand before him, to serve him, to minister to him, to burn him incense. We are a kingdom of breeze coming before him to share at his table together. That's why we gather physically. And we've mentioned this in a couple sessions, like there's great resources online, but resources will never replace the priesthood gathering together to be living stones built together to offer up spiritual sacrifices. And this is something I feel like the church has really got to recapture again so that we can understand why do we gather physically and not just rely on online resources to be the priesthood, to partake of the, uh, the table of the Lord together? Why do we gather physically? Why do we place an altar of incense at the centerpiece of our ministry, which is the house of prayer? Um, like, why do we do these things? And if we can recapture that, I feel like evangelism and spirit, truth, and power will break out naturally, just as you see in the book of Acts. And we're gonna look at the priority that prayer places, or the priority that they gave to the place of prayer and ministry to God. And the next week, when we uh, finish up with the road portion, we're gonna look at how all this was born from the place of prayer. And um, so priesthood is, is just a massive topic. I remember um, as a new believer, reading the Bible cover to cover the first two times, I begin to get really confused because all these tidy little doctrinal truths or confessions and catechisms that we had really compartmentalized everything super neat and tidy. Where, you know, before the cross, Jesus didn't give grace and mercy. Um, people didn't have the benefits of the cross till Jesus came and died on the cross. So that's why he had to come. And we just trust him with the fullness of time because it was done at the perfect time. Um, so just kind of too bad for the people that were born before the cross, right? But Jesus came in mercy and forgiveness and grace is after the cross. Um, Acts chapter two, the Old Testament, like didn't see the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't until Acts chapter two and after that the church received the Holy Spirit. So you had all these little tidy things that put everything in a cute little timeline that you know made sense if you just you know, took it hook, line, and sinker, but there was a problem. When I began to read the Bible for myself, there were so many things that just kind of snapped um, into place. But one of the things that really troubled me was reading about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And so I started listening to other pastors and they would mainly play a game of prepositions of like, well, he might've been with them in the Old Testament, but he came upon them in Acts chapter two, right? You read through the Old Testament, it uses all the prepositions, if, when, or, um, with, in, upon, 
It uses all of those. And so that breaks down very fast when you see the work of the Holy Spirit in, with, on, and upon people all over the place in the Old Testament. Um, David, the forgiveness and the grace that he walked in, it's easy for him to become white noise. And so many leaders and pastors and teachers, it's easy to point to him as being a, quote, new covenant guy in the Old Testament because he experienced the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of the Lord. So King David experienced all the benefits of the cross. But he's such a loud example that it's almost like we understand King David of God breaking his rules to foreshadow Jesus and give David an opportunity that no one else had. Um, I just began to wrestle with the justice of that. But what really like hit me too, along with the Holy Spirit stuff, is you see grace and mercy, forgiveness all throughout the Old Testament. And I begin to notice these things. I'm getting a little rattled because I'm just, the foundation I thought I was standing on is my understanding of the division of the Testaments was uh, just crumbling under my feet as I began to read the Bible. And I'm just asking God real questions because I'm the nosy guy that's gonna like acknowledge something that's kind of rubbing up against what I believe and ask the how and the why questions and then just trust the Lord with the answer. Um, what really provoked me is when you read through First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, you have the story of Israel. Then when you read through First and Second Chronicles, you have the same exact story told from a priestly perspective. And so that's why Chronicles tends to focus on how the kings specifically treated the temple um, versus their kingly accomplishments in battle and stuff. Uh, but in Chronicles it had a piece of information about King Manasseh that wasn't in Kings when I read through First uh, and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Manasseh was Israel's most wicked king, given to all the idols. He worshiped Baal, Asherah, and Molech, and it was when he led his nation into burning the children in the fire as sacrifices because the children that were being born because of the temple prostitution of Baal and Asherah the Lord was like, that is it. Judgment is coming on this land. To the point that when Josiah came, who was a good king, who turned to the Lord, who turned his nations, or turned at least the hand and the foot of the nation back to the Lord, um, Yahweh came to Josiah and said, you're good. I'm not gonna execute judgment on this land because of your repentance. But because of what Manasseh did, judgment will come on this land. But I'll wait till you're dead and gone your sons will experience this judgment. Um, Josiah found that to be a, a good word, um, but uh, Manasseh was the one responsible for that immovable object coming to Israel's land to clean it of the bloodshed that Manasseh brought on that nation. Wicked king, right? Sorcery, idolatry, sexual immorality, just everything, the fullness of wickedness in this one king. Well, you get over to Chronicles and you find Manasseh was taken prisoner by an enemy king when Judah was attacked. Manasseh sitting in prison, cries out to Yahweh, turns his heart towards him. Yahweh forgives this king Manasseh, gets him out of prison, puts him back into his kingship over Judah and restores him. And he finished out his days loving the Lord. 
When I read that, that's when I just, in frustration, just had to put my Bible down. Like, praise God for your forgiveness, but I'm genuinely confused now, God. Like, what is the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Jesus, I love you, I know you, I'm not denying you, but why did you have to come? Why the cross in that moment of time? Why did you have to shed blood? If you operated like this in the Old Testament and your Holy Spirit was poured out in the Old Testament like this, why? Like, I don't get it. I don't understand, and I need to understand. So I'm frustrated, and the Lord let me carry this frustration for probably about three years. And the reason is I did not have the framework in here to understand the answer to the question if he would have answered me in that moment. I would have been like, what are you talking about? So two, three years go by, and I'm still doing Bible study. I'm still loving Jesus. I still have this frustrating question that's just always on my heart. Like, what is the difference between the Old and the New Testament? Or what's the difference between the Old and the New Covenant? Those are two different things, by the way. The covenant and the testaments are two different things. Um, there is a symmetry in the testaments, and there are differences in the covenants. But my, uh, I'm just growing in Bible study, growing in my understanding and love for the Lord. And it was after we started the prayer room and we're in our first location. And uh, the Lord says, uh, I'm thinking about something completely different. I'm just walking around the room. I might have been getting ready for... Uh, one of the sessions we were doing back in the first commandment before it was a book. And uh, just out of the blue, the Lord comes and he's like, hey, you remember that question you asked me about what the difference between the Testaments is? I'm like, oh yeah, I did ask that. And uh, as soon as I remember the question, he answered, he said, it's the priesthood. What? But like what as in like, I'm kind of surprised because that's not the answer that I was expecting, but it made complete sense. Because then I immediately remembered in Hebrews where it says the law was changed of necessity because the priesthood was first changed. The difference is the priesthood. And then because the laws changed, the covenant changed. And so the law being changed, the change in the covenant is a chain reaction of the priesthood. So if you understand priesthood, you understand the change of the law. If you understand priesthood, you understand the covenants. If you understand priesthood, you understand that this timeline that we've been taught is just like washed away. And you see the priesthood order of Melchizedek from beginning to end. And you see the Lord's wrestle with constantly drawing a people near to him to be a kingdom of priests to the point even when he delivered the nation of Israel out of Exodus, what was his marriage vow to them? But I want you to be a kingdom of priests. He did not say, I want a tribe of Levi to be a priest. He said, I want a kingdom of priests. It was after the golden calf and after the rebellion of that nation That when Moses came down the mountain and called the nation to repentance, do you know who was the only tribe that repented of the golden calf? Levi. Amen. You guys know your Bible. Yeah. It was the tribe of Levi. When they repented, the Lord restored them. And then Levi became God's judgment arm on the other 11 tribes to cleanse the land of idolatry and to start afresh. But then from that point, God no longer has his kingdom of priests, but he has a tribe of priests that he can work with and then build the tabernacle around that. 
And the whole time that the tribe of Levi had their tabernacle, Moses actually had his personal tent of meeting outside the tabernacle that was pitched, or outside the community that was pitched for him. And men like Joshua spent time there. When King David brings the ark to Jerusalem, when they attempt it the first time, and we know the story as it stretches out his hand to stable the ark because it was put on a cart and the Lord struck Uzzah and uh, he died. They call off the operation. They put the ark in someone else's house and David goes back to Jerusalem and he cries out, how can the ark of God ever come to me? He became afraid of the Lord, but he says something key. He says, we did not seek the Lord according to the correct order. Now, he didn't mean just one, two, three, four, five, six, as in a numerical order of something. He meant we did not seek the Lord according to the correct priesthood order. And so, yeah, you can read the law of Moses and the Levitical priesthood, and there's still some things they got wonky. Um, and the easiest thing to point to is the cart, right? Because if it would have been on poles, it never would have gotten unsturdy, and Uzzah would have never died. But still, I'd submit to you, they would have brought that ark back according to the wrong order. If, they, if David would have meant the Levitical priesthood order, they would have put the Ark of the Covenant in the high place of Gibeon where they were sacrificing like they were in the tabernacle of Moses. But he still, after the priests carried the Ark on poles, he still put it in a tent in Jerusalem, separate place from where they were sacrificing um, with the liturgy of the tabernacle of Moses, with no veils, put the singers around it. And so it's still a different priesthood order. And he said that the, he told Solomon at the end of his life when he's giving him instructions for the temple, he said, the Lord had his hand upon me to show me a pattern. And so King David sought the Lord in the law. He went line by line, and it's no secret. You read through the Psalms. He was someone who loved the law of the Lord. But he found the wisdom and the access to Melchizedek priesthood with hidden within the Levitical code that was written to that tribe of priests of Levi to be a priesthood. That, beloved, is the key of David. I love music, but music alone is not the key of David. The key of David is revelatory access into the Melchizedek priesthood through a spirit of wisdom and revelation on him reading the law of Moses. And King David ushered his entire nation into that priesthood. And so when I say the timeline's blown up, we're talking about an eternal priesthood of God where men and women who would seek the Lord always had access to Yahweh to come out from the tribe of Levi and to come out from the burden of just the mere shadow and draw near to God face to face, heart to heart, according to the order of Melchizedek. And this was always available to them. And they saw it from afar. A lot of the New Testament writers talked about the spirit of Christ being in the writers of old as they were constantly looking for something that was coming in our timeline. But because this was an eternal priesthood and Jesus Christ is the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world, whose works were finished from the foundation of the world, access into that priesthood was always there. But the Lord kept it hidden to protect his own heart. 
so that those with noble heart and mind that would search things like King David did would search it out and find and find him. And King David was put in leadership over his nation primarily to unleash that revelatory access for his nation into a different kind of priesthood that Yahweh blessed. Because as when that tabernacle was going, they had no adversary. So the priesthood is important. Priesthood is all over the Bible. And so now that the door of revelation has been blown open and the revelation of like, hey, all 12 tribes are priests. That's what Acts 2 was. Is like just a revelation to the Jewish people is like, hey, it's not just about Levi. It's that I'm gonna pour forth my spirit on all flesh, not just Levi or the few Nazarites who would take a vow to draw near to me. I'm gonna pour my spirit out on all of you, young and old, men and women. Everyone's gonna prophesy. I will pour out my spirit. And then Cornelius Then he starts pouring out his spirit on the Gentiles. He's like, oh, by the way, I'm gonna pour out my spirit on all flesh, not just all 12 tribes of Israel, but all flesh. All mankind is invited into this priesthood through the access that Jesus purchased for us. So the whole Bible, the whole Bible is about priesthood. And this is central to how the New Testament, the early church understood the prayer meeting. Because without the understanding of priesthood, a prayer meeting is just, well, let's get together and ask God for stuff and maybe he'll make our evangelism work better. And that's good stuff. But if that's how we think about prayer, like, man, our understanding of prayer is like a millimeter deep. So I want to look mainly at the priesthood in the New Testament. I didn't plan any of that. I just went off because I love the priesthood. I love the priesthood. And I still remember that day when I'm just, the Lord answered that question for me. He's like, what's the difference between the Old and the New Testament? Why did Jesus have to come? He's like, the priesthood. And just blew open this revelation of like, oh my goodness, now I understand how the law applies in the New Covenant And like the symmetry of the Testaments, instead of there being a sharp dividing wall between Malachi and Matthew and a sharp dividing wall between Matthew and the cross and a sharp dividing wall between the cross and Acts 2. It's like there's a symmetry of how the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And now we're invited into this massive revelation to operate as priests according to the order of Melchizedek. When Hebrews, when the book of Hebrews says we have much to say about Melchizedek, I don't think the huge majority of the church actually believes that. They probably don't even know it's in their Bible, first of all. And I don't mean that as a cut down. But when you say phrases like that, usually you're met with like, you're a Mormon. I'm like, I'm not a Mormon. This is in the book of Hebrews. We have a lot to say about Melchizedek. And the way we talk or not talk about Melchizedek, the underlying tone is more like we don't have much to say about Melchizedek. Beloved, we have much to say about Melchizedek, making a lot of like big statements about the Bible tonight, but here's another one. The entire Bible is about Melchizedek. There is much to say, and this is why Hebrews can say we have much to say about Melchizedek. But again, the, the concept of priesthood is vital to understanding how the culture of the early church understood and honored the prayer meeting why the early church was committed to the prayer meeting. Why, were Peter, why was Peter and John on their way to 
morning prayer at the temple? Why did they go to the evening and morning sacrifices? Anyway, so let's look a little bit about, uh, at the New Testament concepts of the priesthood. I already know I'm not gonna get through this whole message. So maybe if we can wrap up priesthood <laughs> and then I can do the other three points next week. We'll, we'll be okay, but we'll, we'll see. Now, even with all my stickies, I don't have the opportunity to go exhaustively through this, but these will just be kind of highlights so that perhaps when you read through the New Testament, you'll see the themes of priesthood um, all throughout. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. Priesthood is everywhere. In Ephesians chapter two, verse 20, Paul says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole, be, uh, whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This is a little bit clearer concept behind the familiar phrase when Paul's talking to the Corinthians, when he's calling them to a life of holiness and fleeing from sexual immorality. He's like, guys, you're actually the temple of God. The Lord is building you and fitting you, each stone put together to be a building, a habitation for God in the spirit. You are the temple of God. Um. I don't know what your thoughts are about the third temple in Ezekiel and the measurements and stuff like that and the third temple being built in Jerusalem again. I tend to think like, beloved, like we're the third temple. We are that new temple. And I think Paul's pretty plain about those things in the New Testament, whether some of these things have dual fulfillment, because we see dual fulfillment in scripture. So um, whether they, they have a dual fulfillment of a, you know, having one meaning and then it's built later actually in the land of Jerusalem. That's cool too. I don't know, but I know right now that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul's pointing to this here in Ephesians 2, 22. Um, Romans 15, 16 is another astounding one. Um, the New American Standard and the Legacy Standard Bibles are the ones that really pull this out correctly in their translation. So if you don't have... That translation, just listen to me. Uh, but Paul uh, presents the priesthood concept in Romans 15, 16. Um, and I'll start reading in verse 15 just to give context. It says, or Paul says, I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul even understood that his evangelism was as a priestly duty, that as Gentiles were brought into the fellowship, that they were making that spiritual house for God to dwell into. And so Paul even saw the Gentiles in his work of evangelism as a priestly work as he's presenting offerings to the Lord of the souls that were being saved through his apostleship. Uh, Peter goes further. If you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 
I love Peter's language because I, I feel like it's the most clear. In 1 Peter chapter two, start in verse five and then we'll read nine and 10. But he says in verse five, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Verse nine, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Peter has the same concept that Paul has as your living stones being built together as a holy priesthood, as, a, as this spiritual house and that as you come together in this spiritual house, that you're going to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there's still a temple, you're the temple. There's still a priesthood that offers up sacrifices. But what's beautiful about not having to participate in the shadow of things to come, but being able to draw near to God in the fullness of what's being poured out now through Christ in his new covenant priesthood, our sacrifices in our priesthood are lots more fun. That's why God can confidently say in Isaiah 56, I'm even gonna bring the Gentiles to my house of prayer and I'm gonna make them joyful there because it revolves around this. You're a chosen race, verse nine, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, so here's our sacrifices, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And beloved, this has its beginning in the house of prayer, in the prayer room. Um, lastly, in regard to priesthood, Hebrews uh, 13, 15 and 16 kind of picks up what these sacrifices look like again. Again, uh, just, these sacrifices are fun. They're not robotic and they're not meant to be rote. It says in verse 15 of chapter 13 of Hebrews, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that give thanks to his name. And so let me finish here. In verse 16, it also says, do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. That sounds a lot like Acts 2.42 and then on through the rest of the chapter, doesn't it? the early church doing good and sharing with one another, but then also prioritizing the priesthood, continually devoted to prayer, that they would have lips that were constantly devoted to giving thanks to his name. And this is the same language from the dedication of the Tabernacle of David in 1 Chronicles 16. When David's setting aside the musicians and setting up the liturgy for the Tabernacle of David, and he's calling the nation to continually give thanks to his name, to praise him, to speak of his wonders and his excellencies. Are you waving at me or do you need my attention for something? Oh, I love you. My wife's on slides tonight, everybody. Slide, slide, slippity slides. Actually, there's no changing, it's just one slide. But you were changing them earlier. I'm sure that they were great, great transitions. Before I move on, does anyone have any questions about priesthood?
Yes, sir. I, I would. Um, no, I, I've, yeah, see, stuff happens at Las Palapas, guys. But uh, that, that's a wonderful question, and I struggle with the same, same thing as well. I think one of the things that provoked me into understanding why is uh, when I was reading through Psalms one time, Uh, David says a phrase in Psalm 119 where he says, open my eyes to behold wonderful things in your law. Now in the Protestant modern Western church, I'm like, what is wonderful about your law? I thought it was sin and death, right? Like how are they praising him for his law? Um, A really good book that began to shift my perspective on that is titled, Is God a Moral Monster? It's framed as a question, and it's written by Paul Copen. Um, we only use the law, typically modern day, to contrast how bad they had it and how good we have it under grace. And that was not the purpose of the law at all. The law is a revelation of the heart of the lawgiver, and it's a revelation of the nature and the character of God, his thoughts, and his ways. And so being a slave community that was rescued out of Egypt, that were given laws of justice, mercy, and faith were the three weighty issues that Jesus said were the weighty matters of the law. They began to see Yahweh as separate from all these other gods because he was full of loving kindness and mercy, beauty and power and authority. And so they would praise him because they saw his mighty hand, not just working practically in their lives, but also through their deep study of scripture. And so I would say, begin taking a section of Psalm 119. It's a really long chapter, but a section of Psalm 119, maybe just like once a week or once a month, and just begin to meditate on those passages. And if your heart doesn't feel like David's excitement, then um, just continually pray and dig there and ask the Lord to show you like why. And for me, sometimes, many times he has to answer me intellectually first before my heart can catch up. But if I don't understand up here, then there's no place for my heart to catch up anywhere into. And so, um, but that was one of the provoking spots was why is he saying beautiful things in the law or wonderful things in the law? Um, Because I thought that Paul said the law was sin and death. I didn't realize that Paul was actually talking about a separate law titled sin and death, like the law of gravity or the law of physics, the law of flight, the law of sin and death. And I always attributed like that attitude towards towards that. And so I, I would point to the beauty of the law of why. Um, and then also understanding like the New Testament writers um, taught that the spirit of Christ were in those prophets and writers of old. And so they also met Jesus. So when you say like it's easy to see Jesus, I think we mostly mean um, 
the benefits of the cross. So it's easy to point to that and, and praise him. And no doubt, like he's worthy of praise for those things. But there's so much to his character that the Israelites understood that we don't today because we use the law to contrast um, instead of understanding as a new covenant believer that the law is actually written on our hearts. So it's written on our hearts, the seat of our emotion, and it's written on our minds. This is the new covenant. And you can read about this in Jeremiah. Uh, Hebrews quotes the new covenant again. And it's written on these places on our intellect and our emotions. And so it's made to impact us at that level so that we can rejoice like they did. Um, One of the other things I'll throw in as a parenthetical to that is the Israelites, when they saw the judgments of God, they didn't mostly see themselves as on the receiving end of the judgment. They saw them more as the plaintiff in the court case, as someone crying out for a just judgment from a just judge, so that when justice was served, it was time to celebrate. And so that's why they could sing about the justice and the judgments of the Lord as well. So that's another area to probe. Hmm? Sure. Thanks. I, th- I think that um, in addition to that, a big part of what we miss in like the, in the Old Testament, but specifically like the law, is we don't understand the spiritual application of things that seem like rules, like solely like rules, like, uh, and descriptions of things. Like one of my favorite examples is when it's talking about things that are clean and unclean, and it's saying that um, if it chews the cud and it has cloven hooves, it's clean. If it does one or the other only, it's not. And so it gives examples, and it says, I think the camel, the rock badger, uh, and the hare. They're, they all chew the cud, but they don't have cloven hooves. <clears throat> and it says that, that a pig has cloven hooves, but it doesn't chew the cud. And so um, I believe that what it's saying is if you chew on the word of God and you meditate on the word of God and it becomes part of you and you, it becomes, you know, it's like in your, in your, your being, like who you are, right? That's chewing the cud. But walking it out is rightly dividing the word of truth in your life. And if you don't have those two together, you're unclean. So it's like you can have this, but if it doesn't ever end up demonstrating, then you're, then you're not bearing fruit. Jesus talks about that, right? The other way is if you just have cloven hooves, so it looks like you're walking it out but you're not, it's not real because it never came in. It's just a show. And Jesus talks about that too, right? It's the, like the Pharisees, the whitewashed tombs. Like people walk over them and, they, and they're walking over dead men's bones and they don't even know it, right? So it's like you have to have both. So when I, what I really believe is, and when I, especially when I um, just think coming to mind, David, uh, King David for sure, but Abraham and uh, and Jacob come to mind in the Old Testament. They just really seems like they had a real and intimate relationship with the Lord, where even if it wasn't the word of God yet, right, they had 
I, I believe what I'm saying is I believe that the Holy Spirit like gives me this impression that those two men and a lot more really had that intimacy with the Lord where they actually had the connection that's available to us now. So when we read the word, we're supposed to be engaged in a place, not just in our minds, okay, what does this mean, right? But like we're engaging God and the Holy Spirit starts speaking to us in ways that sometimes you can't even describe. It's too deep, right? I believe they had access to that. And the law, in addition to just having access, the law was actually meant to guide into way deeper waters. And it still is. Some of my favorite stuff to even connect to the Lord with now, since Jesus has died and been risen and ascended, is still in the Old Testament. That's where the Holy Spirit meets me, just like he does in the New Testament. So I hope that's helpful. I don't know. That's good. Thank you. Does anyone have any questions on priesthood before? Oh man, yeah, we'll come to Las Palapas. Um, Hebrews. Like if his priesthood's from cover to cover, then we should know who this man is. Um, in Psalm 110, Jesus ascended and the father said to his son, Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand. Um, today I've begotten you, you're a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And uh, I know there's some debate about who Melchizedek, who Melchizedek is But uh, I'm looking for the description of Melchizedek here in the book of Hebrews. I don't think I have it highlighted in this Bible, so it's a little bit. Oh, here we go. Beginning of chapter seven. Do we have a kid? Who's the youngest person that can communicate in this room? Is it Isaac? No, it's okay. I, I wanted someone more elementary school age, but uh, I, know, I know they're all back. Okay, so I just want you to, if you already have a disposition towards who you think Melchizedek is, just put pause on that and be, become like a child. Think Sunday school. Just simplicity, simple gospel stuff. And I'm gonna read about Melchizedek says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, prince of the most high God, who met Abraham after he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, 
to whom also Abraham appointed a tenth part of all the spoils was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. So his name means king of righteousness. Then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. He was without father. He was without mother. He was without genealogy. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. King of righteousness, king of peace, no genealogy, no beginning of days, no end of days. Who is this man? Hebrews 7. No, that was... That was reading from the scripture, it's Hebrews 7. And when I, when I was saying what the names mean, Hebrews actually puts that in there for us. So that's one of the reasons why I can confidently say like the whole Bible's about Melchizedek because the whole Bible's about Jesus. Um, and I know that there's some, some points of disagreement on some of those passages of like, well, it's not Jesus because Jesus is greater. And uh, I appreciate those discussions and I've had those discussions. We can have those at Las Palapas if, uh, if you want. But uh, that's who I think it is and that's why I make the claim that the whole Bible is about Melchizedek. Um, if I were to concede and say like Melchizedek's not Jesus, then I could still say the whole Bible's still about his priesthood because Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek forever. Jesus made a lot of appearances in the Old Testament. Another really cool book is The Unseen Realm by Dr. Michael Heiser. Amazing, amazing book. It will just make you fall in love with Jesus and just something about understanding our place in the unseen realm, where we've come from, where we're at now and where we're going to is just astonishing. That just makes the heart come alive. It's like purpose and vision, but then like beauty stuff too. It's amazing. Um, quick question for you guys, because I don't want to press beyond your capacity because I'm a big geek with this. I could probably wrap up in about 30 minutes or we can go back into a time of worship and prayer and ministry uh, for the rest of the evening until it's time for the table of the Lord. So who wants to keep going for 30 minutes? You're not gonna hurt my feelings if it's... Cool, I think that's the majority. So we'll do that. Um, what I wanted to do then is move on into uh, look at the priesthood, or you could say house of prayer, the prayer meeting, the prayer culture of the early church. Um, as these three things, and I've made this claim throughout many of the years, is that the house of prayer is the beginning, it's the sustaining means, and it's the end of all of our life and work. Um, and so first, I just wanna kind of provide an example of those biblically um, to substantiate that. 
Um, but first, I want to read a quote by John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. It's not going to be a, a super long quote, and some of us are, are familiar with the principle, and I know it's not scripture, but hey, John Montana, sorry to call you out, bro, but do you have your glasses before you peace out? Amen. Thank you for playing bass with us tonight. I love you so much. Love you. He's a, a pastor over at Faith Outreach, and he's been a good friend, and it's always a pleasure to see him and play with him. So it was cool for him to fill in last minute when Doug couldn't make it. All right, so John Piper quote. Many of us are familiar with the principle, um, and I know it's not scripture, but however, um, the principle simply laid out here is easily seen through scripture, and we're gonna kinda talk about this, but I wanted this to be a foundation of where we're going. Because remember, the house of prayer is the beginning, um, the sustaining means, and the end of all of our life and work. And uh, this is actually a book on missions. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and goal in missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into a white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal... The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples and the greatness of God. So again, easy principle to remember. Remember, missions exist because worship does not. Um, we could look at Jesus's life, but I wanna begin in Luke 24, 49, where Jesus tells his disciples, behold, I'm sending forth the promise of the Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I don't know why they translated that stay because everywhere else it's translated sit. So he's saying you are to sit in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Now there's a few Greek words for the word sit and this is not the sitting of you're gonna sit down and wait. There's another Greek word for that, of like have them sit down here, and they all sat there, they reclined there. There's another word for just like a passive sitting where you're just like waiting for the bus. This is not that type of sitting. In fact, it actually means to confer a kingdom on one or to set in a ju judicial seat. So when Paul is telling the Corinthians to do you not appoint judges over yourself? It's the same Greek word. Do you not sit judges for yourself? Do you not seat judges or appoint? Or when Jesus is exalted on high, ascends to the throne and sits down, he's sitting down on his throne. And so it's not an active thing, but he's sitting in a judicial seat. He's sitting in a royal seat. So when he's telling the disciples here to go sit in Jerusalem, this is also the same word that he used when he was praying in Gethsemane, and he told the disciples, go sit over here. And we know the story. He went to pray, and he came back, and they were asleep. By the use of this word, because it's not a passive just sit here, we know that he actually meant pray. Sit in your, judici your judicial seat and use it, pray, talk to God, help me in prayer. Sit here while I go over there and pray. 
I'm appointing you to sit here and pray. And we know that he expected them to pray because when he came back and fell them asleep, he said, you could not keep watch and pray with me for like one hour? And so we know what he meant and they knew what he meant. And so here he's using the same exact word when it says stay in Jerusalem until he's saying this same word sit in this active place, begin this active place of prayer. So what do they do? Like they go and they prayed. And again, it wasn't an idle sitting, but Jesus told them to, uh, to sit to sit there. And he's using that active word of appointing someone as a judge or putting them in a royal seat. So I think this could take on a couple meanings. Either this is like, you sit in the thrones that I'm giving you, or you sit in the seat that I'm giving you, and you build that. You build that house of prayer reality. Or does it mean that you create this house of prayer reality and enthrone me on your praises. And then when he's enthroned in the tabernacle of David, it says in Isaiah that he'll be swift in justice and righteousness. And so I kind of take a both and approach to it where it's like there's some authority that he's given to us in prayer, but then there's also that higher authority of he's being enthroned on our praises. So that kind of sits. So they do that kind of meeting. And it says in Acts chapter one, verse uh, 14, with one mind, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary and his mother Jesus and with his brothers. And this is exactly where they were when Acts chapter two happened, not necessarily the location, but the same heart posture. They were in that place of prayer. It's interesting. You have Acts 2.42 and they're devoted to fellowship. They're devoted to teaching, breaking of bread and to prayer, but primarily the birthplace was this place of prayer. Yes, there was fellowship going on, but What's emphasized here in the verse is just the prayer piece. So this was the birth and the origin. The church was birthed from this place and this posture of devotion and this posture of prayer. Next, after the church's birth, we see that it becomes the sustaining means for all the things that we see in the book of Acts, all the miracles and all the power, all the extension of the walls of the kingdom. Um, after Acts chapter two, um, the church continued in prayer. And we see that in the verse that we just opened up with. Um, in Acts chapter three, it begins with Peter and John going to the prayer meeting at the Temple Mount. The early church was known for always being in Solomon's portico and taking advantage of the temple facilities and being there for the times of prayer and the hours of prayer. And so what's interesting in Acts three, uh, take a note Uh, this one, it says, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, comma, the hour of prayer. It's an important time. I'll get back to that in a second. Um, Acts chapter four, it ends with the prayer meeting. Acts chapter five ends with prayer, a prayer and worship meeting. Um, Acts chapter six shows that while the church continues to grow, um, that the personal infrastructure is put in place to help people deal with the growing church and the issues that are arising to protect the sacredness of the priesthood. 
When they say the ministry of the word, that it's not good for us to wait tables because we have to focus on the ministry of the word, it wasn't just the teaching ministry. Yeah, that was a part of it, but it was the ministry of the word like King David had set up in the tabernacle of David. And just in a weak way, like that's our worship with the word sets where we take the word and we begin to minister the word to God. And we begin to enter into that place of corporate Bible study and thanksgiving and, and, uh, and prayer to the Lord. And so I believe that that to be a, a, a priestly priority as well. Um, Acts 7, even at the end of that terrible, um, uh, that terrible chapter in, in the sense that it was Stephen's martyr, Acts 7 still ends with Stephen praying. Um, and he wasn't cursing the people that were murdering him. He was praying for them. So Acts 7 ends with prayer. In Acts chapter 9, the very first thing that's said about Paul after his conversion is that he is praying. In Acts chapter 9, verse 11. In Acts chapter 10, verse 2, Cornelius became the first Gentile convert because he prayed continually. And now this is interesting. It was in the ninth hour of the day. The hour of prayer. Remember Acts 3.1. When Cornelius, who was praying, saw the vision to go get Peter. I love how those times connect. So like even when we're in here during our hour of prayer, 6 to 8 a.m. and p.m., like I know that the Lord is answering the prayer of the people like all around these neighborhoods. Like God, all the Corneliuses that have a heart bent towards you that are seeking you, would you begin to answer their prayer? Would you begin to show up to them in visions? Like this is just the neatest thing. Peter and John, like they're devoted to these rhythms of going to the temple to prayer for, pray during the hour of prayer. And then you have Cornelius, who's also a Gentile, devoted in that same hour because he knows it's the Jewish hour of prayer and he's seeking Yahweh and giving alms. And the Lord shows up in that very hour of prayer. In Acts 12, 12, when Peter was released from prison by an angel, he went back to Mary's house. Why? Because he knew they were gathered together there praying. Acts 13, verse one and two. You can turn there and I'm gonna read through this one. It says, now there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manahin. This is my best stab at that one. Who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. While they were ministering to the Lord, and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to. One, we know from reading Act, or Romans 15 that Paul still never left his priestly identity and understood that he ministered as a priest. Um, but two, that phrase, ministering to the Lord. Like they were ministering to the Lord. Prophets and teachers were together, not just discussing great ideas or doing Bible study together, which were great, but they were ministering to the Lord. Like we know usually like in, in our circles in the house of prayer, we know what that looks like. Like we know that we wanna love the Lord. We know that we wanna pray and uh, offer him thanksgiving. And 
Like, why have we lost this like, in the church? And I'm just, I'm given to all my days to recapture that back into the heart of the modern church again, that our places would be built around ministry to the Lord and that we would not set up any sort of great ministry idea or great business idea until out from that place of ministering to the Lord, the Holy Spirit says, do this, do that, set apart for me. And then verse three, when they had fasted and prayed more and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And so they didn't get up and leave hastily, but they stayed in that place of prayer and they were given to fasting to really prepare for that mission so that Paul continued to minister as a priest. Now we could go on, um, but uh, I'll go backwards a little bit. Just call your memory back to Jesus teaching that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, Luke 18, one. Um, or Paul's command in 1 Thessalonians chapter five. Verse 16, very simple commands, where he says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I think Brad was here in January when he was like, this is my favorite passage to show young people when they're trying to figure out, like, what is God's will for their life? He's like, well, it's real easy. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So beloved, as he prayed in another place, I pray that you be filled with all wisdom and understanding, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will. And this is it. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ. This praying priesthood was fueled by staying connected to Christ in prayer. The eyes of their heart were constantly set on Jesus and worship and thanksgiving to God. And this is what fueled everything that they did. This was what fueled the miracles. And so I love miracles, I believe in them, but the places that I get around that are so hyper-focused on miracles that we forget the heart of God because we just want God to show up in miracles and blow people's minds, which I like getting my mind blown. But it's like, that place of just simple contentment and thanksgiving, that place of the, the priestly place of the corporate and individual house of prayer is just such a beautiful place and we can't ever lose that in our pursuit of miracles. But understand like the natural outflow of being fueled by this place is he stretches out his mighty hand to save and heal. The natural outflow is because we encounter Jesus in this priestly place, we become witnesses that can't help but share what we've seen and heard instead of pundits with information because we took a class on evangelism. May it not be so among us, but may we be filled with the fullness of God through encountering him and his place of the priesthood that he's called us to, our eyes on Jesus just overflowing that we become to the point like those little kids that get a new toy or new video game or see a movie or something and then the next day at the lunch table at school, that's the only thing they can talk about. Because we're all natural evangelists for the things that, are, that we're excited about. So if we continually set our eyes on Jesus, participate in his priesthood because it's fun, get our hearts excited there, we can't help but share what we've seen and heard in those places. The last point is devotion to prayer being the end goal of everything we do. Now, this is twofold. 
Uh, one is the goal as it pertains to this life and to even future generations, but more on the earthly side, before the return of the Lord. Um, regarding this goal, I can't think of anything better than to sum this up with Paul's words. And you can turn with me to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. And uh, we'll start in verse 5, just to... I, like reading things in context. It blesses my soul rather than just jumping right in there. First Timothy chapter two, verse five, and we're just gonna read through verse eight. It says, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, and that is Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I'm telling the truth and not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in the faith and truth. Therefore, I want in every place, or I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So his whole goal, all the sufferings that he endured and the perils and the trials and the beatings and the shipwrecks that he was talking about, everything that he endured, everything he put his hand to do was for the goal humanly speaking, of getting men in every place to pray. To fulfill Malachi 1.11, that from the rising of the sun to its setting, that incense would be offered in every place and in all nations, the name of the Lord would be great. So the end of Paul's ministry, the goal of Paul's ministry was to get people to pray. The goal of my ministry is to get people to pray. Not just because God answers prayer and we need him to do stuff, but he's beautiful. And I love talking to him in prayer. I know how much he misses us when we don't talk to him. I know how much he longs for those out there that don't talk to him. And how much he longs to pull them into the participation of the priesthood, that they would draw near with a sincere heart full of faith having their conscience sprinkled clean just to have a conversation with God. Like Paul's whole goal and the reason he was in ministry was I want every men everywhere to pray. Remember the first thing that God said of Paul in Acts was he is praying. And then his goal in ministry became I want every man to pray. The other side of this point of it being the end goal is that the house of prayer or God's heavenly throne room is our destiny. And we are all heading to that beautiful place. Therefore, we should anchor our affection on that place by giving ourselves to its culture of beauty, power, and glory now. That's all centered around him who sits on the throne. The vision and longing for this place really begins even with Jesus's prayer in John 17, 24. See, this Christianity is not about a cheap beliefism so that we can get into heaven at some point. Jesus's own prayer and desire before he went to the cross in John 17, 24 was, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me would be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundations of the world. 
So yes, we want to change culture. Yes, we want the kingdom of heaven on earth, just as it is in heaven. We want those things. We want principalities and darkness dethroned. We want the culture of light and the kingdom set up in our cultures. We want men everywhere to lift up holy hands and pray for the sole purpose of coming near to God, to come close to him to draw near to him. Jesus in John 17 is going to the cross and he's not looking for a people collection to put in his heavenly storage unit so that they don't have to burn for eternity. He says, I want them with me. I want to be friends. I want to be intimate with them. I want to show them my glory and I want to give them my glory so that they can be one just like I'm one within myself. This is shocking and it, David's, when we understand that, Jesus longs for us to be in his house of prayer. We become gripped to be the longing to answer Jesus's prayer. And then Psalm 27, 4, David's cry makes so much sense that this one thing I ask, this one thing that I desire, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. I want to behold his beauty and I want to meditate in his temple and I want to inquire, ask him stuff in his temple. I want to come to where he dwells and have a relationship with him there. And so letting even these fill our perspective now, fill our perspective and fill us with visions of eternity so that Revelation 22 will fill us with hope and eternal vision. Because again, that's where, that's where we're going. Revelation 22 is our destiny. It's not what I used to think my mansion on the hillside with a bowling alley and a swimming pool and a racetrack and a golf course and a house filled with everything on earth I always desired, but my credit limit was too low. And the throne room, the New Jerusalem, would be just far enough off the distance that all the ruckus from the holy, holy, holy songs wouldn't mess up my peace and harmony. But no, like that temple is my destiny. And we're going to go there, standing on the sea of glass, mingled with fire, with a heart full of love for the one on the throne. So why not start now? And that's why we're building a house of prayer for all nations, as weak for all nations, as weak and as small as it is now. Like God likes us, and He likes what we're doing. And I long for others to draw near to him. And I'm not like saying that to put the pressure on you to come to the house of prayer, but like those out there, like they need to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to sit at his feet and behold him and fall in love. So in closing, have the sacred trust. Um, banners back there or the flyers back there. But I wanted to briefly discuss this real quick. Um, the sacred trust that we've established in this house and began last week is a personal commitment to a specific weekly prayer meeting. The priesthood and the tabernacle of David and the temple of old had sacred times of a morning and an evening sacrifice. And this pattern of morning and evening sacrifice was also carried over by the New Covenant Church through the prayer life of their fellowship. This corporate devotion to prayer was and continues to be the sacred duty and pleasure entrusted to all of the people of God. At SATHOP, it is our conviction that this corporate call to prayer is our primary responsibility 
First Peter says of us that we are a royal priesthood, living stones built together as a spiritual house to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. As a kingdom of priests, we are chiefly called to stand before the Lord, to serve him, to minister to him, and burn incense, which is prayer, praise, worship, adoration, and thanksgiving. This is our priestly call and our eternal destiny. The sacred trust is the centerpiece of our mission that keeps us actively engaged with Jesus as a fellowship. Although many good works will naturally flow from the prayer room, the prayer and worship life of the church is paramount in order to keep ourselves in love by praying, just as Jude commands us. This is important because according to 1 Corinthians 13, without love, we are counted as nothing and we can give nothing. So beloved, be encouraged. If you haven't committed to a sacred trust yet, I know that you will consider doing so. Um, but until then, the prayer room is still open for anyone to participate. Um, but I have already settled in my heart years ago that I want to dwell in the house of my God to behold his beauty and to be able to inquire in his temple. And all this because I have a vision for my life. I want to be old and I want to be in love. Amen. So Daniel, come and tickle them plastics. It is astonishing, like the links, the height, the depth, the width that the love of Christ has gone to throughout all of human history. To save us so that we can be close to him. Even like in my own life, when I drift, he's always faithful to just come back and say, I miss you. And sin is not necessarily so much about like, a, you know, well, you really messed up and I'm really disappointed. You're really dumb for sinning. It's, it's like just the same as distraction. It just like turns your face from your beloved. And it should hurt because it severs the communion. Now, when I heard that as a kid, like, well, you don't sin because it cuts off communion with God didn't really impact my heart then because I had no communion with God. And, you know, to some degree, it just didn't make sense because it's like, yes, yeah, sin cuts off communion with God, but as soon as I say I'm sorry, then I have communion with him again, right? But uh, when you begin to see him as the person who prayed John 17, 24, Father, I want them with me. You begin to see him as a person the person of Jesus, the person of God, with feelings, with emotions. Like I'd mentioned earlier, a principle of the Lord even guarding his own heart by concealing access into the priesthood, by concealing the revelation of that. You read through the Old Testament and you continually see like the heart of one can just always reaching out. But then a heart that becomes sorry and grieved. But not jaded. 
That's always been a mystery. Someone who can grieve as much as God has grieved, but yet still not become jaded and still wants his people. just a person that likes us, wants us close. There's real things we can do to actually build relationship with people. And if he's a person, like the choices that we make can grow intimacy or let it fall to the ground and die. just wants to be with his people. So Jesus, we love you. Thank you that you are a good husband. Thank you for the many dwelling places that you've orchestrated all throughout the nations. We thank you that we get to be a part of one here in San Antonio. We thank you for many more in San Antonio that will spring forth as well. it's such a mystery that you are the God of the universe, but you can come down and you find rest with us. What does it look like for you to rest? What do you need rest from? Yet these places, it says in scripture, become your place of rest. Father, first and foremost, we just wanna be a people that can provide that for you. We wanna be friends that can do that for you. We're your ministers. We're here to serve you. Thank you for your hand upon this season. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of the priesthood. We thank you for letting us participate in Jesus's priesthood, even as he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek and he's a priest forever, that you've called us into that order. And so Father, just as it continues in Psalm 110, that we're the people who volunteer in the day of your power. And so we just volunteer freely. And just say thank you that we get to be here with you. Thank you. Father, and from that place, I just ask that the nations would become glad. The nations that have moved in and even just surrounded this property. We just thank you that you're going to bring them into your house of prayer. That you're going to make them joyful there. Father, and I thank you for the churches in the area. I thank you for new life, and I thank you for victory. I thank you for Maranatha. Thank you for Calvary Chapel that's down the road. 
all the ones in this area, Father, I just thank you for just releasing your tender mercies and your conviction that every house would be a house of prayer, that everywhere your name is named, that your Father's house would truly become a house of prayer. So we love you, we thank you. Just to ask you, Holy Spirit, for just, just a, a revelation that would just rest on hearts specifically. Yes, the minds, but on the hearts. Let it touch our emotions, the beauty of the priesthood the beauty of Jesus, the priest. It says in Hebrews, he's the apostle and the high priest of our confession. And we say once more, I'm sure I'll say it a whole bunch before before my life is over, but we love you. 